All right, friends, good morning. morning. We're going to get started. Uh, Honestly, this, this adult forum was born out of a couple of different things. Uh, one, I've now, I'm about, I'm about to do my fourth Holy Week at Holy Communion. And every year, as we get close to Good Friday, as we get close to the crucifixion, my email box starts filling up a little bit. Uh, I start getting questions. And I thought, okay, let's, let's head this off at the pass. Let's talk a little bit about crucifixion. The other thing that happened is Barbara Brown Taylor got on the radio. Barbara Brown Taylor, if you don't know her, is an Episcopal priest, one of the best preachers there is out there. She's not been a pulpit priest for a while now. She's been a professor at a college, Piedmont College in Georgia. Uh, her problem was she was such a good preacher that her little church grew too much and her vestry kicked her out. Uh, there's a great, great book she wrote about that called Leaving Church. But Barbara Brown Taylor went on Terry Gross's show on NPR and said she hates Good Friday. Uh, doesn't want to go to church on Good Friday. And that got that stuck in my craw a little bit. But I also know that it, she's not alone in that among Episcopalians. Uh, so I thought we would talk a little bit about crucifixion. We'd talk a little bit about the cross before we get to Holy Week. So to do that... Um, I want to ask you first, what have you heard about the cross? Where are we starting? What have you heard? What does the cross mean in Christian theology? What does it mean? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. What else? There are a lot of songs about the cross. Any, any particular ones you want to name? The old rugged cross. Old rugged cross. Yeah. It's empty. There's no body on Empty. Oh, we'll talk about bodies and crosses. What else? I don't get it. You don't need the right answer right now. I mean, there's not a, this is the good, and you know, we're not trying to get the exact Episcopalian right theology at the moment. Give me everything you've heard about the cross, the stuff that makes you uncomfortable. What have you got, David? Suffering. Suffering. What else? Shout it out. Carrying your cross. Carrying your cross. What else? It is finished. It is finished. Immaculate 
Inception Basilica in Washington, D.C., the National Basilica, this, this Jesus with one giant nipple, and he's sort of this blonde-haired, blue-eyed ubermensch. So you got bloody versus buff Jesus. What else you got? Substitution for just a minute. So there is a particular. Anybody ever seen the cross bridge diagram? I know this in the evangelicals in this poll. So, has anybody ever seen this one? Um, There is us and there is God. And our sins are an impenetrable, you know, death. And Jesus comes and bridges it with the cross. Has anybody ever seen that before? Lisa has. Um, it's, a, it's a very particular theology of the cross. This sense that the cross, and, and it's active. I mean, that language is active in our prayer book as it exists today. Uh, the the sacrifice of Jesus is seen as this bridge of the incrossable gap 
that exists between us and God because of the fall, because of our sin, right? That is part of the theology. Substitution is another theme, that it, particularly in, in Anselm of Canterbury largely gets blamed for this because he comes up with a particular way of talking about it. But Anselm of Canterbury, about a thousand years after Jesus, uh, talks about what, what is known as penal substitution. P-E-N-A-A-L. Uh, substitution. Otherwise it gets really feminist really fast. But um, penal substitution atonement theory. That there is in a lot of the ways, at least in the Western European presentation of the cross, this sense that Jesus died in our place. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God. God's anger could only be satisfied by a blood sacrifice. Um, uh, the wages of sin are death, but Christ pays the debt for us. A lot of that language becomes the norm of the Western church, the, the church that grows up in Northern Europe and then comes over to the United States. And, and there's, a, there's a lot there. Um, Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest. She wrote this huge book um, on the crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus. I would say a lot of what Fleming Rutledge leans on is Karl Barth. Uh, and Barth is very much a Western European theologian. He's Swiss. Probably the most important Protestant theologian of the 20th century. And Barth starts pushing against, along with a lot of you know, the white dead guys of Northern Europe, uh, but of the 20th century, they start pushing back against this very, very bloody Jesus, this very, very um, what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus sort of theology of what the cross means. Uh, Bart says that's a pretty limited understanding. And Bart talks a lot about the judge judged in our place. That is to say, if you introduce this kind of theology where humanity and God are so very separate, and then Jesus goes into the middle of it, you, it necessitates an understanding of, of Jesus that doesn't fit with most Christian theology, that you can't ever, you can't put Jesus apart from God. Um, is a Moltmann, a famous um, German theologian, would write a big book called The Crucified God and basically says this makes no sense. Um, has anybody ever heard that story about uh, the train um, and the, um, uh, the, the, the switch operator for the train as a metaphor for the cross? You know what I'm talking about? They're all such good Episcopalians. Um, there's this story about a switch operator, and it features in a lot of evangelical preaching about the cross. Uh, there's a story about a switch operator that um, there's a man, he has a son, and his son is playing on the tracks, and there's a train, and there's a bridge that's out, um, and his son is playing on the tracks uh, where the train has to go, 
um, and he's standing at the switch. And he has to decide whether to sacrifice his son um, and save all the people on the train or not save the people on the train and save his son. The problem with that kind of play with the cross, Bart says, is it, it takes God's own self out of the equation too much. It creates too big of a separation between Jesus and God, where Trinitarian theology would say, no, the whole idea of Jesus is that God entered into the situation, that God offers God's self. So they play with it a little bit. But there's some baggage that comes around Jesus, around the cross, and a lot of it has to do with um, what Calvin talked about as total depravity. Y'all heard that phrase? Total depravity? Bob Lewis has heard total depravity. It's very, well, yeah, Calvin, Presbyterian. So what is total depravity? What does it sound like? Oh, yeah, and the idea is that human beings are so screwed up. They're so totally depraved. They're so far away from God that nothing could bridge this gap. And so the cross becomes this ultimate symbol, this ultimate sign, this ultimate... And, and, and it's, um, it's almost transactional, right? This theology that the cross satisfies the debt. We didn't talk about debt. Um, but that's another piece that people lay around the cross sometimes. So what happened to the train? What happened to the train? Well, the whole idea is God loses God's son to save humanity. So right? Like that's, that's why it, it plays into those sermons. But it, again, you've separated the two persons of the Trinity in a way that Bart and Moltmann and these theologians wonder, can you really do that? But so even before we get into um, what I would argue, you, you really can't talk about 20th century theology, you can't talk about um, Christian theology without incorporating the two-thirds world in the black church, but even if we just stay with the old white dead guys, uh, we start questioning a lot of the traditional language for the cross, a lot of the traditional um, images of the cross, a lot of the traditional stories and ways we've talked about explaining the cross. But it's relatively recent, right? Um, Karl Barth's writing in the first half of the 20th century, and people are reading Karl Barth into the middle and end of the 20th century. Fleming Rutledge's book doesn't come out until just a couple years ago, and people are still chewing on what Barth had to say. And so our prayer book, when does our current prayer book get published? When does, when does the um, close happen on, on changes to the prayer book? 1979. So while the language about God has been updated some in the prayer book, a lot of the language about the cross that carries baggage for folks is built right into our prayer book. And I, I, I can understand why a Barbara Brown Taylor would have a hard time. A, another thing that happened in the 20th century uh, that hadn't really played out by the time our prayer book gets published uh, has to do with the anti-Semitism around the cross, uh, around the language about the Jews. We thank John's gospel for that. But, but the way in which the cross gets talked about, our 
prayer book, I have a, I make an adjustment to our prayer book for Good Friday around here. Um, if you pray the prayers, what are called the solemn collects on Good Friday, right out of the prayer book, there is a prayer that prays that everyone would convert to Christianity and Christ would reign over all. Which on Good Friday, which historically in Western Europe um, was a day that was terrifying for the Jewish community because so many atrocities were committed against the Jewish community on Good Friday as they read this story, as the Jews, as John says, demanded Jesus' death and preachers would excite people and they would go and take it out on the Jewish people living among them. So on Good Friday, the prayer, that prayer, I, especially in a community like University City, I can't do it. So we use a set of solemn colleagues that comes from the Diocese of Massachusetts um, that prays for the peace of Jerusalem for Muslims and Jews and all who share the holy city, um, recognizing God gave God's promise first to the Jewish people. It, it, it's subtle, but it, it, that language is built right there in the prayer book. And when we get to the cross, it can intensify. Because a piece of the cross is that for a long time, Christianity blamed the Jews for the crucifixion. Even while they were saying, there's this impenetrable gulf between us and God without the crucifixion, you can't, but, but we have to blame the Jews for killing Jesus. So there's this, the, the cross is heavy. Who said heavy? I think Valerie, when you say heavy, the cross is heavy. The cross is really heavy. And it's, it's, a, it's you know, Paul says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I would argue, though, that the right attitude is not to just run away from the cross. Um, when we do that, we tend to surrender the cross to others to define it. I think there are some really interesting, um, thoughtful, and, and really beautiful ways to understand the cross, both in Christian tradition that, that became minority reports after Anselm that are starting to be resurrected, and there are ways of understanding the cross um, that have to do with the changing sort of face of Christianity that really open up this metaphor. We'll get to those. Let's talk about bodies for a second. I brought a few crosses in. Um, I had Jerome bring this one. This is one of our early crosses at Holy Communion, right? And who was talking about the empty cross? Yeah, Lucy. So this is very much an empty cross. I don't have a date on this one. I would guess that this is close to 1860s. Um, but this is a brass cross that used to be in our chapel. And then somebody gave us another pretty good brass cross that has jewels on it. So we have that one in the chapel now. Um, but this is a very Protestant cross, right? Empty, right? Um, our Lutheran sisters and brothers and our Calvinist sisters and brothers only ever have this kind of cross in their churches usually, right? Um, up here on the board, you've got super bloody Jesus. Anybody know what that kind of cross is called? A crucifix. Yeah. Um, so a crucifix. A crucifix is generally the kind of cross that you'd see in a Catholic church, right? Uh, it's, it's a cross with a suffering Jesus on it. Uh, and, and there's a couple pieces to that. Uh, did you know that the Catholics have their own number of the Ten Commandments? Yes. 
Yeah. So the, the Catholics and the Protestants can't even agree what the Ten Commandments are. The Protestants separate out, um, you shall have no other God before me, and don't make a graven image. The Catholics fold graven images into that you should have no other God but me. And, and the whole joke is that the Protestants wanted to remind the Catholics about the graven images, so they broke it out as its own commandment. Um, they combined a couple later on. I'd have to look it up to tell you which one. But there's this, there's this idea. If you go to the Holy Land, um, and you go into the churches in the Holy Land that mark the sacred places, you can always tell the only, the only churches that control the sacred places in the Holy Land are the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. There are Anglicans there, but we have a very lovely school and a very lovely cathedral, and, and there's a lovely pot museum underneath it, but there's no sense that Jesus did anything or where the Anglicans are. Um, the, the place where the crucifixion happened, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is controlled by the Orthodox and the Armenians, which is another kind of Orthodox, and the Roman Catholics together. And you can always tell if you're in the Catholic section. Do you know how you can tell if you're in a Catholic-controlled section? Jesus is 3D. In the Orthodox world, you're not allowed to depict Jesus in three dimensions, or anybody in three dimensions. It's a graven image. So the icons are there. You get two dimensions. And you'll have a two-dimensional cross with Jesus on it, but you won't have a 3D body. So if you ever find yourself in the Holy Land, and you're wondering, is this a Catholic or look and see if there are any 3D images, you're definitely in a Catholic space. And, and if you're in a Catholic space, there will definitely be 3D, Jesus, Mary, whoever it is. There'll be, there'll be some kind of saint in three dimensions marking. So that's the crucifix. Anybody know what Anglicans tend to call this cross? Christus Rex. Christus Rex. Anybody know where this cross came from? This used to hang over the pulpit, I understand. Um, at some point, uh, and I don't know if we had a more Protestant rector or assistant rector, but we replaced the Christus Rex. This was, I, I grew up with a life-size, what's called a Christus Rex. For whatever reason, Anglicans gravitated toward this body on the cross. Now, that's not to say that if you see a Christus Rex, it's necessarily an Episcopalian or an Anglican church. But oftentimes, if Anglicans are going to have a body on a cross, they'll have this one. What makes this different? Jesus has clothes on. What else? He's risen. He's vested. In this case, he's got a chasuble on. This is a, this is a way of, for Anglo-Catholics of a certain generation, um, in the 1850s, the, our whole tradition turns more Catholic. Uh, we didn't celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday in most Episcopal churches until about the 1970s. Uh, Holy Communion was a bit radical for being a church named after the Holy Communion. We're kind of in the 1860s, right, as this whole thing is, is heating up. And, and being called the Church of the Holy Communion, I would bet, meant that we had a stake in how often communion should be said, how often communion should be part. The reason we have 8 o'clock services in most Episcopal churches, uh, the 8 o'clock service didn't come about when they got rid of the 1928 prayer book and people wanted the old language. It didn't come about because a bunch of um, high churches said we want to get in before the golf times. It's not that, although both of those things have worked well for Episcopal churches. It happened because there were a group of priests 
that were more Catholic or more um, liturgical than their congregation. And while the principal service was morning prayer that looked very evangelical, the priests wanted to have communion every Sunday, so they added the 8 o'clock service as the communion service most places. So um, this was a way to do 3D Jesus but still be Anglican. And the thing that I find fascinating about it is that in a lot of the Episcopal versions, Jesus is vested using the vestments that the Episcopalians wanted to move for. Uh, so if Jesus is wearing a chasuble, it's okay if the priest is wearing a chasuble too. Um, and, and it's just something to know. You can, you can sometimes read a church based on what the cross looks like. And because the Episcopal church is such a wide breadth of church, you can sometimes read based on what the images look like. Right? Anybody know the nickname for St. Peter's and Ledoux? Mr. Peters. Mr. Peters. <laughs> because you would call the, the, the priests there often would go by reverend or pastor. They wouldn't go by priest. And, and they, would, they would be thought of as Mr. You know, Mr. Jernigan is their rector. And, and it was low. Low church. They only started doing communion every Sunday like last year at St. Peter's and Ledoux. What kind of cross do you think St. Peter's and Ledoux has? The empty cross. Nice little brass cross. Somebody's great-grandma gave it. It's for free. Right? Um, Trinity, in the central west end, was our historic smoky place. It was, it was the Anglo-Catholic place. What kind of cross do they have? It, it's, it's the It's the Christmas Rex at Trinity. Um, and, and that's part of my argument that we actually don't have a real Anglo-Catholic church in Missouri. Um, a real Anglo-Catholic church like St. Paul's K Street or uh, Church of the Advent in Boston is going to have a bloody Jesus. Uh, if you go down to Swanee's Chapel right now, there's this almost life-size, very white, um, painfully crucified Jesus in their beautiful chapel, um, their beautiful seminary chapel. And, and they're staking a claim by that. So you can sometimes read based on the cross. Uh, this I find compelling. I mean, I grew up with this image of the cross, and I find it a compelling statement, not surprising. You know, part of, I, I do this in pilgrimage when we have folks who are new to the Episcopal tradition. I talk a lot about how you don't ever really walk away from Christianity as you first heard it. You don't really ever walk away from um, the tradition that you grew up with. If you grew up Catholic, if you grew up evangelical, you're going to always be living in response to that. You know, you'll be reinterpreting. But the way that you first heard the story is always going to color. And for me, I grew up very Episcopalian, and I grew up with a life-size, um, carved by a woman sculptor, uh, who was a friend of my grandma's, priest uh, Rex, looked a lot like this Jesus. And, and for me, it's always been a compelling image because the cross is part of it, but Jesus is risen. Jesus is moving into the, fort, um, into the future. There's this sense, you know, there's, this, there's a proclamation that we are an Easter people. Because even in the midst of Lent, even as we get ready to walk through Holy Week, we know we are an Easter people. We know the end of the story. We know that Christ is resurrected. The victory over death has been won. Goodness is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hate. Life is stronger than death, as Desmond Jude likes to say. And, and to me, that image has always been a powerful symbol of that. 
Um, don't worry, though. I'm, I'm not going to... Worship committee could talk about whether we put something like this in uh, to the church when we do renovation, but I'm not going to do it. Oh, Lucy could be down. Okay.
Um, the Catholic theology about Eucharist, as it sort of gets to until Vatican II, a lot of it is defining themselves over against those Protestants. And the Protestant understanding of Eucharist, up until really the last 20 years, they were just defining themselves against the other. And that's something that happens, I think, in the Black Episcopal churches. It's defining itself as not like those other black churches. And so formal and ritual and, and, um, and, and images of Jesus become more compelling because it's, it's more identity markers about this looks different than other black church. So it's, there's, there's a lot there. Joan. Um, I, I was reading about this uh, one time about what Jesus would have looked like. If he was from the Middle East, he would have been very short and very dark skin. But, uh, and also, we had a pastor one time telling us about if he was crucified, it wouldn't have been like that. If he had committed a crime, he would be uh, put in a, uh, he even said on a post like this, they tie you yeah. to a post, and they put you in a, well, what we would call the town dump now. And you would be dying there and followed. Nobody would take you and put you on a hill with a, all around you. There's a, there's a lot about historical Jesus and what they think about where the crucifixion, and a lot of it is really speculative. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I think, and there's some theologians that, um, John Dominic Crossan is one of them, that are really pushing uh, this, this, this idea about what the crucifixion means. What does the crucifixion mean is a question that gets started the day after it happens. And it's intense already by St. Paul. And it has not stopped being an intense question. And I want to get a little bit into the, some of the two contemporary theologies that I want to talk about, because I think it helps us get to why. So I mentioned before the crucified god, Jürgen Moltmann. Um, this is a copy, if you can see, um, in that glass case in Spanish, El Dios Crucificado. It's in that last case because officially that is a relic. Because um, that copy of the crucified God was knocked off the shelf uh, when the Salvadoran Death Squad entered the University of Central America uh, in 1990 and shot a group of Jesuits and their housekeeper, the Jesuit martyrs. And um, Juan Baro, who was one of the um, priests who died, uh, this was, I think this was actually John Sabrino's copy that he was borrowing, because he was a um, sociologist. Uh, but he bled out so much, and the books had fallen on the ground. And so you can see the other books um, have, have bullets through them. They've been shot. Um, but the crucified God um, actually soaked up a great deal of his blood. Uh, which is a power, if, if you come with us to El Salvador and do those of you who are going, you're going to see this in the Martyrs Museum at the University of Central America. Um, Jürgen Moltmann's still alive, and he's written about this copy of his work. Um, Moltmann is a big influence for John Sabrino um, and Ignacio de Correa. De Correa uh, is one of the Jesuit theologians who dies. John Sabrino um, happened not to be there. He was up in the United States at a conference. And so his whole Jesuit community was assassinated while he was away and he came back. Um, and he had to 
go through, after having lived through the um, death of his Archbishop Oscar Romero and many other priests and nuns and, and um, folks he knew from his work, he had to lose his mentor and his fellow Jesuits here at the University of Central America. Um, but John Sabrino continues writing theology. Uh, before he died in Ea um, Korea, Nazaria Korea, writes a great deal of theology. Um, Sabrino um, publishes a number of the kind of classic uh, theological texts on the meaning of Jesus in um, liberation theology. This is his most famous, Liberador, uh, Jesus Christ Liberator. In it, he begins uh, an exploration that he explores in a whole other book where he starts talking about the crucified people of El Salvador, the crucified people of Latin America, that you can't understand Jesus unless you understand how crucifixion continues. Uh, at the, uh, at, the um, at the Church of the Martyrs, which is uh, where the martyrs are actually buried, um, it's the it's, it's the chapel. It's, it's their version of College Church at that Jesuit campus. Uh, at, it's up by the Theology Center. And if you look forward at the altar, there's this really beautiful, interesting, very Salvadoran art. But if you're standing at the altar as a priest and you celebrate, you look at the art on the back wall, and on the back wall. They're called the Salvadoran Stations of the Cross. John Sabrino likes to say it's really only one of the Stations of the Cross. Jesus is crucified. And it's images that are drawings, and they're life-size, huge images of bodies that were found, um, that had been tortured, uh, people who had been killed during the war. And they're on the back wall of the chapel, and they're what the priest looks at while celebrating the Eucharist. And John Sabrino really teaches that you can't understand what crucifixion means unless you understand the suffering that is ongoing. That Jesus is the sacrament of God entering our human suffering. Entering the suffering that is ongoing. I think there's something to this. As I said earlier, the social location of Christianity, uh, Philip Jenkins, who's a theologian in uh, Pennsylvania, says, the social location of Christianity is changing, it's particularly from where Christianity does theology. For a very long time, for about 1,500 years, the Christian social location was the privileged social location, right? that um, Christianity was the religion of empire, it was the religion of the kings and the queens, and sin was understood to be a very particular thing, a very personal thing, the way in which I personally had fallen short. And so the cross became this, this way that this individual could get back to God. Well... Toward the end of the 20th century, the geographical center of Christianity moved south of the equator. There are more Christians living in the developing world, in Latin America and in Africa, than in North America and Europe. And so the location, the center of theology shifts. And it 
causes us to go back to the early writings of Christianity that write from a position of persecution, a position of suffering. It, it makes you hear the whole letter to the Hebrews so differently. Martin Luther wanted to kick the letter of the Hebrews out of the Bible. He didn't understand why it was in there. But if you read the letter of the Hebrews today, it's all about how God goes to the suffering, how God identifies with the blood that is being shed day in and day out. And if you're writing from somewhere like El Salvador, especially during the Salvadoran War, but even today, where thousands of people are being murdered in a gang warfare, it's a different understanding. When the people are suffering, they understand the cross differently. In the United States, probably the most important theology to come out around this is James Cone. Uh, James Cone, uh, Ben Sanders came and gave a whole um, uh, adult forum about James Cone back in February. Uh, Ben's an ethicist at Eden Seminary. James Cone, and he started this early, but really it comes to a head in the last great book he wrote before his death, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. James Cone is the theologian that puts theology around the sort of popular assertion Jesus was a black man, right? James Cone says, if you're writing from an American perspective, the only way you can really understand Jesus is to understand that the social location that Jesus occupied in his time was akin to the social location of African Americans the majority of U.S. history. So when Cohen says Jesus was a black man, Jesus was black, he's saying that Jesus was uh, re the recipient of racism. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Uh, he was uneducated. Uh, his father was blue-collar worker, uh, probably was spending a lot of time looking around for a place to be a carpenter. A carpenter in Greek is tekton. It just means skilled laborer. That Jesus' social location in the place of the Roman Empire in the um, jurisdiction of Palestine, which is what the Romans called it, where um, there was a really empowered group of Jewish leaders as a Galilean, as the son of a tekton, of a, of a worker, Jesus was not at the center of things. The other thing to understand is, as Joan was starting to get at, crucifixion was a really gruesome way to die. Yeah. I mean, not just in the Mel Brooks sense of that movie that's like a gore fest. I mean, that's true. But, but crucifixion was a gruesome way to die, and it had theological implications. St. Paul gets into this. When Paul says we preach Christ and him crucified, in Jewish teaching, to die by hanging on a tree was a statement that you were ultimately condemned, ultimately worthless, beyond salvation, beyond the pale. To say that your Savior died hanging on a tree made absolutely no sense. This is the wind-up for when Paul says, we... Um, 
what we proclaim is thought of as foolishness by the Jewish people. It doesn't make any sense. And Cohn says lynching worked similarly. It was state terror, right? That the Roman Empire found it particularly useful in Palestine because if you hung people on trees, it was particularly bad in a Jewish community to be hung on a tree. And so it was a particularly effective way of putting down the scent, of putting these people in their place. Similar to the way lynching operated. When a mob lynched somebody, it was as much about the rest of the black community in that area as it was about that individual, probably more so. It was a way of communicating who's in charge, who has power, where you belong, what we can do to you. Cohen says, in America, you can't understand the cross apart from the lynching tree. It, it resonates with what John Sabrina Cohen quotes Sabrina, Sabrina quotes Cohen. You can't understand the cross unless you understand Jesus didn't die alone. Jesus died at the hands of a mob. Jesus died the way that black people died in this country for centuries. <coughs> Telling his people to stay in their place. And when you proclaim resurrection of somebody who's been lynched, you say something about the kind of salvation God is looking at. Uh, that's the other thing to say about John Sabrino. When you start talking about a crucified people, when you start opening what crucifixion means so that it's not just about Jesus, but crucifixion is the experience of suffering that Christians and, and people all over the world who are oppressed suffer, it expands your sense of what the cross means. Going back to the letter of the Hebrews. In the last chapter of the Hebrews, in the letter of the Hebrews, the author says, um, since, cross was, since Christ was crucified beyond the city wall, so too we must go beyond the city wall. That is to say, and this is a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to do on Good Friday, but the cross is a sign, a symbol, a sacrament of God showing up where the world tells you God can't show up. God shouldn't show up. God is where human beings say God shouldn't be. And for Christians, God works salvation. God's central act, the final act, the capstone of all the Jesus' ministry, all the healing, all the preaching, all the love, the capstone happens exactly where it should not happen. You don't get there using the models of the crucifix and, and the cross that we have used for 1,500 years. But when you ask people who have been through suffering what crucifixion means, the symbol can open. And it can mean that God shows
shows up in the places where we have been taught God is not supposed to be. So I got some discussion questions for you. So, at your table, what traditional teachings, words, stories, or theologies about the cross have spoken to you? What of these stories do you still hold? What do you resist? So think across your whole life. If the cross diagram worked for you at some point, talk about why it needs to work, or why it works now. Um, well, what of these stories still hold? What do you resist? Talk about hymns, too. What songs do you still hold? What do you resist? Have you ever heard the phrase, the crucified people before? What does it mean to you? What does it mean about our world? And then finally, uh, what do you think of Good Friday? Do you come to church? Do you avoid it? Why? So I'm going to give you 10 minutes to talk amongst yourselves, and then we'll wrap it up.